0: Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com Sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase From Amazon, or sign up for a free trial with Audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom.
1: I want to talk tonight about the quality of sympathetic joy to expand upon the practice that you began yesterday. And I actually had the occasion today to practice a little sympathetic joy when a friend called me from Malibu, California, and took the opportunity to tell me that it was 70 degrees in Malibu, and that she was sitting by the ocean watching the glistening pattern of light move and change as she sat in the 70 degree air, watching that ocean swell. And she said, there haven't been any dolphins yet, but I think probably soon. And I thought, gee, that's funny. I'm giving a talk tonight on sympathetic joy. (laughs) And it's zero degrees or something like that here. (laughs) Here we go. Another opportunity to practice. Sympathetic joy, as Marcia described, is known in Pali as mudita, which means to be pleased or to be glad. In fact, the Buddha called it the mind deliverance of gladness, because this force, this particular quality of happiness can actually liberate us, can deliver our minds from the uh, habits that normally constrict and limit us. The quality of sympathetic joy is being able to actually rejoice, to take happiness, to be delighted in the happiness of others. It's not just giddiness and being excited for no good reason. It's based on being able to take this kind of delight when we see that someone else is doing well, that they're successful, or they're having good fortune, that they're happy. And it means that we, in practicing it, challenge some of our deepest assumptions about aloneness and about our place in this world, our feelings of loss or deprivation, our ideas about happiness. It's really a tremendous challenge. The Buddha said, in a battle, the winners and the losers both lose. The losers lose in obvious ways because they've lost territory or family members or <clears throat> riches and, and they live in, in that state of, of shock and distress. But the winners also lose because they live in fear, knowing that having gotten what they've gotten through conquering, through violence, in effect, that just one turn of the wheel and their situation can be completely different. It's very uncertain, it's very unsettled. And so living in fear is, is its own kind of suffering, even though nominally, in terms of appearance, they've won. So to liberate ourselves from that true and deep abiding sense of loss, we need to remove ourselves from feeling embattled all of the time. Feeling that we're engaging in a battle. And in terms of sympathetic joy, that particularly means that we're no longer engaging in a battle with others. Trying to, in some way, bolster how we feel about ourselves and our situation by wishing that people just had a little bit less going for them or feeling resentful, feeling envious, feeling cut off, feeling jealous when we see that somebody is enjoying some kind of happiness or good fortune. And as His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, it only makes sense to practice sympathetic joy because if we practice feeling happiness, about the happiness of others, then the odds of our experiencing happiness increase about six billion to one. And as he went on to say, those are very good odds. So being able to rejoice in the happiness of others to actually take delight instead of falling completely under the sway of that voice which arises and says, "Oh no, you know, this is sort of unbearable to see you doing so well." To to be able to actually feel happy for others' happiness is based on several conditions. One is developing, engendering, <clears throat> nurturing a sense of connection as the poet Wendell Berry once said, the smallest unit of health is a community. Health in this sense, meaning healing. The, the smallest unit of healing is a community. It's not something that is done apart by oneself, for oneself. Community means connection. It means the recognition that we do exist as part of a whole as part of a a greater fabric. That's actually the nature of things. We can't have that sense of joy in the happiness of others without a firm foundation that is continually renewed, that reminds us of how connected, in fact, we are. I once had this kind of funny experience where um, some years ago I went to Israel to teach and had several weeks actually before the retreat was gonna begin so I was staying in somebody's apartment in Jerusalem and went to the Western Wall once known as the Wailing Wall which is a a very sacred site in Judaism where you take prayers or wishes, or aspirations that have been written down on a piece of paper. And you put the prayer in a crack in the wall. So I went and did that, and I also had many people who asked me to do that on their behalf. And I wrote, I wrote all of this out, folded up the piece of paper, and placed it in a crack in the wall. Then I went back the next day, and for no good reason whatsoever, I decided, based on nothing, that it was more efficacious. It was, it was of greater benefit if the piece of paper stayed in the wall, that it didn't fall down to the ground or something like that. So based on nothing, I just decided this. So I went the next day and went to approximately the same place where I had placed the piece of paper the day before and kind of looked to see if it was still there. And I saw it, so I thought, oh good, it's still there. You know, prayers are doing well. And then I left and I went back the next day and checked on my piece of paper. And I wasn't quite so sure. I mean, a piece of paper is a little hard to distinguish one from the other, always. And I kind of looked and I thought, I'm not so sure. Maybe it's not doing so well. Maybe this isn't such a good sign. And I went back the next day and began the routine again of checking for my piece of paper when the folly of it all struck me and I realized, you know, it doesn't matter. The whole point is that all of us were writing out these heartfelt wishes. We were opening ourselves in some way. And to imagine that mine was different from everyone else's and needed to be sequestered and protected was really absurd. It's like we're all standing there in some way, together, in some spot, some, if not physical spot, some psychological spot like that, really wanting to be happy, wanting something in the nature of peace. And we're not so very different. We see this when we are facing difficulty, when we feel the fragility of life. And hopefully, we also see this when we're feeling our own happiness, when we're feeling a sense of joy or contentment. I had another strange experience just a couple of years ago when I had been quite sick all winter with um, bronchitis that just wouldn't ever go away. And finally, after months, really months of being very sick, I got better. And I was living in New York City um, in an apartment someone had given me. I was walking down the street one day when I heard a woman's voice saying, I was really sick all winter. So naturally, I was kind of intrigued, and I turned around. And she was talking to a, a street person just sitting on the ground, and she said to him, I was really sick all winter. I had pneumonia several times and I just couldn't get better, but I'm finally starting to get better and I just want to share the joy." And she was giving him a whole bunch of money. And I looked at that and I thought, wow, I was really sick all winter too. You know, I just walked by this guy. It didn't actually occur to me to share the joy. So I stood there for a moment and I thought, well, should I turn to him and say, hey, I was really sick too, you know, like, let me give you more money or, you know, give someone else money or, um, but that so much is not the point. It's not the action, you know, whether it's appropriate or inappropriate to give somebody money is based on a lot of other considerations that have to do with awareness and context and so on, but it's that movement of the heart that says, I want to share the joy that says this person sitting on the street has something to do with me; that my life and his life are connected. They're not so separate. We need that kind of understanding to build the foundation for the experience of sympathetic joy. And then, the second condition you might say, is a sense of inner abundance. Because if we feel we have nothing to give, we will never give. And sympathetic joy is a practice of generosity. It's like we're giving that energy of delight, of happiness, of sharing. If we feel that happiness is somehow a limited commodity in this universe, and the more someone else has, the less there's going to be for us, then we will not be able to take delight in the happiness of others. We will naturally feel resentful and upset and threatened. We have to feel we have some conduit to happiness ourselves, for sympathetic joy to even be possible. And so one of the bases of doing that practice is really learning how to see with more gratitude and more thankfulness. To understand that always we have something to give. If not materially, then in terms of our energy, it doesn't deplete us to give. It, in fact, connects us even further to the fact that we do have something within that isn't going to be broken. It's not going to be disturbed because somebody else gets something. Somebody else has some happiness. It is a practice of generosity to be able to practice sympathetic joy. And that's a really fantastic reflection. What allows us to be generous? What allows us to open to care, to offer, rather than to feel we have to hoard what we have and clutch it and keep it, and to resent the intrusion of others? It's clearly not something external if we look carefully. You know, it's been such an amazing experience to go to other cultures, say Burma, where, and people may have mentioned this earlier in the retreat, but when we went to practice meditation in Burma, we were never ever charged for anything. We weren't charged for room and board even because the people of the country were so honored and excited that somebody would be practicing meditation that they would come and feed you so that every single bite of food you had when you were there meditating was an offering from somebody. And Burma, of course, is an extremely poor country. It's, it's devastatingly poor. And people would always offer just the best of what they could afford. And sometimes it wasn't very much. But they were so moved to... They used to come and watch us eat. And they would be sitting there, just dressed really poorly. And sometimes the food was, it was really meager. And they were so happy at having given the gift that it was incredible to receive in that way really the generosity of someone's heart offering the best that they could. And then to come back here to this culture where in so many places there's a lot, there's quite a lot, and yet not everybody by any means has that same inner sense that they have something to give. And so there's all that withholding and greed and grasping. It's amazing to see that it's not an external measure of when when generosity happens. It's really something quite internal. And we see it, all of us, at different times in ourselves, in our practice, like when we do loving-kindness practice. A lot of times people will say to me, well, I chose some great being, like, say, the Dalai Lama, as my benefactor, and I was offering him metta, and then I realized he doesn't need my meta, you know? What does he need my metta for? It's like nothing. And we're back to that state of where, you know, it's worthless. What I have to give is worthless, so I won't. First of all, we don't know he doesn't need our meta, And second of all, why do we just assume that it's a, a measly kind of contribution, that it's not worth anything? And we need to join these two the reflection and the understanding that we always have something to give. That it's born from this sense of inner fulfillment, inner completion or inner abundance and our connection to other beings, in fact, to all beings. That's what makes for the flowering of a quality like generosity or sympathetic joy. And if we make the effort, if we turn our minds in that direction and it's sincere, then even without a great rush of feeling, like, wow, I am so happy you're happy, even without that, just doing that, turning our minds in that direction, brings us back in touch with these two roots, that we have something to give, and that we're all connected. That's why it's so powerful even when we may not feel in a particular sitting a particular practice session that it's glorious and we're just swept away by the force of mudita this is even if it's extremely subtle this is what we're being reminded of is these two roots i was thinking about that today when i was preparing the talk because i was thinking about this somewhat peculiar and sometimes difficult to understand teaching of the Buddhas where he suggests that if you're very angry at somebody that you give them a gift which on the face of it is a little odd, you know, what will that accomplish? But actually I think it's it's sort of connected to this, because when we're angry at somebody, obviously we feel cut off and separate and distant. We're recoiling, we're pushing away. And if we give them a gift, then in a moment, it's like, oh, there's a connection. There's something underneath the barriers that have been erected. And we're also, in the giving, reminded of our own wholeness, our own completeness, as we do that. So these are the first two roots of being able to practice sympathetic joy the sense of inner abundance, and the understanding of connection. And then the third is actually, in the Buddhist psychology, the proximate cause, or the nearest arising condition for sympathetic joy to come up in the mind. And that is being able to see happiness. If we are in the habit of overlooking happiness then it's not going to be very easy to have sympathetic joy. And so the beginning of the actual practice is being able to tune into, being able to open to happiness, both our own, so that we have that sense of inner abundance and gratitude, ability to give, and certainly others. Otherwise, the occasion for sympathetic joy will not arise. It reminds me a little bit of once a group of us were sitting with one of our teachers named Manindra and asked him why he practiced mindfulness. He said in response, I think I at least, and I think maybe all of us were expecting a a kind of ponderous, profound answer, like very heavy, you know, um, I practice mindfulness for something very exalted and extreme. And In fact, what he said in response to the question was I practice mindfulness so that when I'm walking down the road I won't miss the little purple flowers that are growing along the wayside. Which is also true. It may not be the only reason we practice mindfulness but there's something about that about not missing the joyful things and the the beautiful aspects of life even in a philosophical system that talks about suffering so very much since the purpose of life is not to suffer but to come to the end of suffering some of that begins with learning how to actually notice our own happiness and the happiness of others because there's balance there We can't only be coming in touch with what is difficult. We have to be balancing that by coming in touch with what is joyous. Because it's not that suffering by itself is redemptive in Buddhism. It's the opening that is redemptive, that's freeing. There's no point in just suffering and suffering and suffering. But opening with a free heart, with an open heart, with metta and so on, that's what's freeing. And so we open to suffering and we open to joy. We open to happiness. And here again, somebody like the Dalai Lama is such a, a wonderful example. I can remember I heard Joseph mention the time we were at the Buddhist Christian conference at Gethsemane Abbey with the Dalai Lama and I remember um, ceremony be- the conference began with the ceremony of a, a tree planting and um, it was the PBS crew that was filming the Dalai Lama that was all gathered around and it was his security and it was quite a lot going on, as usual, and um, all of the residents of Gethsemane gathered, and all of the Buddhists were there, and across this crowd, the Dalai Lama spied an ancient monk sitting in a wheelchair, and he called out in great delight, oh, he's really old, (laughs) (laughs) and it wasn't like, ooh, you know, (laughs) he's really old, and I'm going to get old someday, and He was so excited, and he made a dash. He went running over to him, and like the camera crews following, and security's following, and everyone's running after him. And he just—he was so excited that this this monk was so extremely old. There's a way of taking delight in things that is very unusual. You know, it wasn't—I'm sure—delight in the monk's infirmities or whatever, but the fact that he had lived, that he'd seen so much, that he'd practiced so long. It was a a source of genuine happiness for the Dalai Lama. And we see it a lot in countries, again, like Burma, where to rejoice in goodness is an active practice, whether it's a good deed that you have done or if it's a good deed that someone else has done. You actually take a moment to rejoice in that. It's not the same as <clears throat> conceit or arrogance or bragging or you know thinking, oh, I'm so great. But it is a state of really delighting in the goodness that can flow. So for example in Burma when every meal is an offering and we're not paying for anything what we would do as a custom would be that each of us, each of the westerners practicing there would ourselves offer a meal so that we were feeding everybody on a given day or a given meal and very often as it's customary in Burma when it's your birthday not to receive gifts but to give gifts. So if I was there once on my birthday, and so I offered the meal on my birthday. That was the way it was celebrated by the opportunity to give. And they have a custom where they put the names of the donors on a blackboard in the morning out in front of the dining room so that everybody knows who's offered the meal so that everyone can rejoice. You know, And people come up to me and say, I'm so happy for you. You know that you had the chance to offer the meal, and that's so terrific that you did that. And, you know, and thank you. And but well, not thank you because you fed me, but thank you because you expressed that, you manifested that power of goodness, and and they're so happy. You know, and, and uh, it's actually a practice to take delight when other people do good, which is not a bad practice to to cultivate. In order to really practice sympathetic joy, in a way we have to make a leap we have to really make a shift, because it's very easy just to go on in the old habits of feeling so separate and feeling so alone and feeling so deprived, like we have nothing worth offering. It's very easy to go along feeling separate, jealous, Envious and resentful. We have to really try to make that shift. We have to want to make that shift. And then the practice is just like practice, you know, it just takes time. But it's the intention, it's the motivation in the mind that is the most important thing. In the Buddhist scriptures, they, they use this um, kind of odd parable, which is that uh, kind of monkey trap where in order to trap a monkey some tar is spread on the ground and a monkey then comes along and steps in the tar with one foot which gets stuck because the the tar is so sticky and in trying to extricate itself and trying to free itself the monkey puts down another foot and then a hand and then another hand and then finally its head that point, it's a completely stuck monkey. And that parable is used to describe us. (laughs) When we are in the habit of perpetuating those tormenting states of mind, like jealousy, and comparing, discriminating, and so on, and we have just one foot down, Rather than put the next foot down in the same patch if we just reach a hand out and grab a tree we can hoist ourselves off. That's the opportunity we have not to just keep going in the same old way but to recognize that we're getting stuck we're getting trapped in old habits and to actually use the opportunity to make that shift. And again, it's not necessarily a shift in feeling. We're not necessarily filled with great delight instantly, like I am so happy you are happy. But it's the shift in our motivation. It's our intention. It's aiming the mind. That's the nature of these practices of the Brahmaviharas: to learn how to aim the mind in a direction that will free us rather than harm us
0: Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste.